Hello everyone, I'm Keisha Taylor-Wesseling, your host for A Correction podcast today, and I am really excited to be talking to Dr. Jonathan Pugh. We'll be talking about all things Ireland and Anthropocene. Dr. Pugh is particularly noted for his work on the relational and archipelagic turns in island studies, disrupting the figure of the insular island. He has held a number of visiting fellowships, given international keynote addresses, and or invited lectures at many universities. He is currently reader in island studies at Newcastle University, and his present work examines how work with islands is playing an increasingly prominent role in the generation of wider approaches to critical thinking, knowledge, and the policy practices associated with the Anthropocene. Establishing a platform for discussion and debate, in 2021, he launched the Anthropocene Islands Initiative. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome. As an islander, I am really looking forward to speaking with you. Hi, hi, Keisha. Lovely to be here and uh, on this great podcast. Um, congrats on your 2% top podcast. That's fantastic. You're doing uh, so well. I'll make sure to pass that on to Lev. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. I've listened to them. They're awesome. Thank oh, you. great. I'm so happy to hear that. Okay, so let's dive right in. First of all, so this term has been circulating round and around and around in the research community. Can you explain what is meant by Anthropocene? So I guess my take on the Anthropocene is as a social scientist rather than a scientist. But but let's maybe start with just the science. So the basic idea of the Anthropocene, which, as you say, is is gaining a lot of purchase in, in a lot of scientific and social scientific communities is the idea that humans have transformed the planet to such an extent now that we we live in a new geological epoch a new epoch so for the last 11 12000 years we've we've lived in the holocene but the idea is of the Anthropocene, as, as the word suggests, anthropos, which is, which is Greek for human, humans have done so much stuff to the planet. They've caused global warming, intensified hurricanes in regions like the Caribbean, which we both know well, um, massive ocean acidification, um, huge rises in sea levels, you know, all this kind of stuff that humans have done to the planet that we've transformed the chemical constituency and the weather patterns and so forth to such an extent that it kind of demands a new, a new epoch, a new age, which, which people are in the process of kind of formally ratifying, as it were, all these clever scientists thinking these things through as, as the Anthropocene, as a, a new epoch in which humans have, uh, have screwed up the planet and they've become such a, a powerful force that, that we're kind of a moving agent, as it were. Mm. And in your book, you say that there are only islands after the end of the world. Can you tell us why? Yes, I can. Um, and I think that the the way into that question is to foreground what I said a second ago, which is that I'm a social scientist. So um, what it involves, the idea that there are only islands after the end of the world, it's to do with a kind of a waning faith in, in Western kind of modern reasoning. Mm. So for the last 
say 100, 200 years or so, broadly speaking, there's been this idea of modernity. And modernity is built around the idea of um, certain frameworks of reasoning. So humans are, are separate from, from nature. Humans are, can rise above nature. They can, can command and control nature. And that's kind of been the broader mindset. You know, modern frameworks of reasoning have captured the, the Western imaginary for the last couple of hundred years. Now, obviously, in the Anthropocene, the idea that humans can kind of command and control nature comes back to biters. So there's an increasing lack of faith in modernity as a framework of reasoning. The idea that, it, let's be straight, it was white Western man could kind of chart the path of progress and development. And that's gone, that's gone wrong. You know, this is what the Anthropocene's about. The, the, the earth has come back to biters. And in that kind of moment that we're in at the moment, there is this collapse of faith in modern reasoning and an interest in this key trope that um, David Chandra and I, who wrote the book together, talk about, which is relational entanglement. So it would be inevitable that as we lose faith in modern reasoning, we turn to the way in which humans and the environment are entangled. Yeah. And this is why islands rise to the fore as a kind of key figure for Anthropocene thinking. Islands have long been thought of as these sites in which you can, uh, relational sensitivities are brought to the fore. So very strongly in, in the Western imaginary, if you think back to someone like Charles Darwin, he talks about the idea on the Galapagos, and obviously the, the theory of evolution was developed on that, that life is entangled with its environment and there's this kind of ongoing process of adaptation and differentiation and that's where species evolve. Also in, in the foundations of disciplines like anthropology in the Western imaginary, people like Margaret Mead, who was a foundational anthropologist, would go to places like Polynesia and look at the people that lived there and, and thought, think that they were different from modern people, modern Western man. They were more relationally in tuned with their environment. So what happens is after the collapse of modern reasoning, this idea that the humans can stand outside of the world, command and control the world, we become interested in this question of how humans are more entangled with the environment. So this is why islands rise to the fore. There's no longer this imaginary of the, the kind of Western man that was above nature. And everything is about sites of ongoing islanding and island relational entanglements and attunements and adjustments. You know, islands become these key figures for thinking through how the Anthropocene unfolds. Hmm. Okay, and you know, there tends to be a tendency to romanticize islands or think of them as backward, as you mentioned mm. in the book. How do you think we can change this narrative? Well, I think, I think it's already changing uh -huh. in the sense that um, on the one hand, under modernity, islands were these kind of liminal peripheral sites. Yeah. So, you know, it was all about the big continents and the island was this place of escape, you know, and kind of if you think of someone like Robinson Crusoe, you know, uh -huh. it's kind of he's on the periphery of the modern imaginary. Uh -huh. But today with this question of how is everything relationally entangled, the islands 
well, we can talk about if they're still romanticized, that's something that can, can come up, but they, they, they move to the center um, as these um, sites for developing alternative ways of thinking about kind of how to, en how to engage in life. Um, so concepts like resilience, for example, which is a very big um, trope in contemporary society. Uh, my little girl, if she goes to school, she gets a badge for being a, a resilient child. Mm -hmm. Now, resilience as a concept was very much developed and still is actually on islands through research on islands, how life adapts and adjusts. And that kind of idea proliferates out into the broader kind of Western imaginary. So you could say that in a sense, islands are still fetishized for these kinds of ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. But the old idea that they are backwards, I think, is gone. I think the idea is that nowadays, whether it's development of new smart technologies, alternative energy programs or whatever, islands have actually moved from the periphery to the centre of mm -hmm. a lot of cutting edge debate. Uh, thanks for that. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say this. <laughs> because <laughs> I tell you, when I was reading through what you wrote, I was thinking to myself, uh, finally someone's put it in a research context, like the specific idea holistically mm -hmm. about the importance of islands and about how center stage they actually are because as yeah. someone who's from from a small island state i i know i i, I so understand what you what you speak about um so i'm happy that you've actually been able to really write and evidence this in the book thank you very much and i, and I think the caribbean is absolutely at the center of the most recent critical developments in in black, black critical thought mm -hmm. you know if you just think about that wealth of beautiful poetry and critique that's come from the Caribbean Camus mm -hmm. Brathwaite, Derek Walcott, Glissant you know all these incredible thinkers mm -hmm. they're also having a resurgence again mm -hmm. in the kind of Black Lives Matter and critical thought that's been emerging in the last few years as well so as someone that loves the Caribbean uh, more, more power to it more power to it yeah for such a small place we actually have <laughs> a, a very high number of Nobel laureates that's right it's, it's, it's almost easier to say who hasn't got one yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so as you mentioned this I, I, I wonder you talk about I, I wonder what you think actually about you, you just mentioned about islands being center um can you tell me a bit more about the leadership role they can play? Um, for example, we, we see recently the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, calling mm. out uh, the importance of engaging with islands at COP26. Um, mm. Is there something more you can say about this leadership role? Well, she absolutely rocks. Isn't she? I mean, she's <laughs> she, not, she is just, <laughs> she is just awesome. Um, so what what... I have to be. I have to be. Uh, I have to be careful in the uh -huh. sense that, first of all, as much as I've lived in the Caribbean, I don't live there now, and uh -huh. I'm not from there. So, any any social force in history always has to come from the people. Yeah, yeah. but maybe I'll just pick up on on one one way in which I I think um, islanders are troubling some of the debates about the way in which islands get framed. Uh -huh. So a second ago, I just talked about the idea of, of resilience. Uh -huh. yeah? 
Now, resilience is the idea that you can adjust, adjust, bounce back, and we're all supposed to learn to be resilient. As I say, it wasn't really a word that I was kind of, it wasn't around. I mean, I'm kind of nearly 50, and it wasn't really around when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And it's around a lot now. And a lot of the idea that you should adjust, adapt, and bounce back constantly to what's thrown at you, these this islands and island research is kind of key to this. It would inevitably be because Charles Darwin showed that life is adaptive on islands, and that's why that kind of imaginary is still there. But let's talk about the Caribbean for a sec. As someone once said to me, for 400 years or more, we had slavery. We knew how to be resilient. We want more than just resilience now. So we want more. We want more than just adapting, adjusting to everything that's thrown at us. We have higher aspirations. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where these debates can come in. You know, do islands, as you said a second ago, Keisha, do do they become romanticised as resilient people or is, as Motley is trying to do, you know, push harder, higher aspirations than Mm -hmm. just bouncing and adjusting to everything that's thrown at the islands does Mm -hmm. that make sense yeah it does and it's interesting because if you really look at it and you really do research it you would see that uh, people from islands have made tremendous contributions to you know society in mainland countries uh, in a host of uh, in a host of ways and not even just in the arts so um, I, I totally get what you're saying and I do think that the Caribbean has a lot to can play a leadership role and should be playing a leadership role so I'm really happy to see this being called out uh huge amount to offer yeah and I you know if anyone I know a lot of obviously it's in the top two percent of podcasts I know a lot of people listen to this you know the the book that David Chandler and I are working on at the moment is trying to really bring out the power of the Caribbean Mm-hmm. in the development of the most recent trends in critical black thought. And critical black thought for me at the moment is at the absolute cutting edge of the social sciences. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the kind of ways in which people are reframing protest and resistance through, through these things. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do in our work is really bring out how Caribbean writers, how Caribbean culture mm-hmm. is really at the heart of so much of what's being written now. And it's mm-hmm. not just the North American continent, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And even the Caribbean has also influenced things in, a, in, in North America too, uh, yeah. because a lot of, there's a lot of migration and a lot of, you know, people who are really well-known and popular and influential have Caribbean roots. I mean, you, you really don't even look at the White House now. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about, you, you mentioned resilience and a bit about the correlation uh, mm. uh, aspect. Can you talk about it in relation to algorithmic form that you discussed? Yes. Yeah, so, so what we do in this book called, called Anthropocene Islands, that I guess was why we're, we're having this discussion, is we break down the different ways in which broader critical thinking, broader policy making, broader debates are engaging islands, islanders and and islandness for the development of wider ways of thinking about the Anthropocene. So as I say, this key argument is that 
islands were once peripheral and they're now so central they crop up everywhere in mm-hmm. the development of wider thinking so we've talked about resilience you know resilience thinking is very much um, something that is shaped by the islandness conceptualization of life it's a kind of non less modern way of thinking now correlation which is the, the term you just brought about there is another analytic we draw out in the book and it relates to the kind of more algorithmic governance so in correlation a good way of uh, thinking that through is that islands are the canary in the coal mine we all know this phrase the island is the canary in the coal mine the mm-hmm. idea that i mean i'm from i live in newcastle at the moment and the canary in the coal mine was a, a canary that miners took down into the mine shaft and if there was gas in the mine shaft the, the canary would die yeah Okay. And that's how you knew there was gas and you better get out. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. islands are the fa- also the famous canary in the coal mine of global warming and rising sea levels because they're at the front line of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the sensors, the canary, the registers, because in, in the Western imaginary in particular, they have often been seen as being very rela- attuned to the environment. They're good indicators when a coral reef degradates that when a when an ecological species starts to evolve in a different way these are all signs and registers of changing planetary conditions for the wider world so what does correlation and what does algorithmic governance have to do with this well it's a logic that means that thinking with islands feeds through into the idea that we can constantly sense and attune to the world algorithmically you know we're constantly sensing and adapting and adjusting so I'll be a bit honest Keisha just as I don't like resilience that much I'm not actually fond of this logic either mm-hmm. you know the idea that we just correlate and constantly sense and attune algorithmically to everything around us to me feels quite a kind of impoverished view You know, I'm more with the kind of more radical guys from the Caribbean, to be honest. You know, I think that the way in which islands get enrolled as the canary in the coal mine and Mm -hmm. how that becomes a way in which we think about the world is a bit kind of sensing. You know, everything's constantly being sensed and, and, and we're in this kind of algorithmic society. I don't like that so much, to be honest, Keisha. Um, mm-hmm. I prefer the more radical stuff that emerges from the Caribbean that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And interesting, as you say, the canary and the cold, cold mine, because um, mm. islands have so much to offer in terms of understanding, you know, our current crisis and as well as charting a, a way out of it. Um, mm. But how do you think this could be done? Because you say, you know, it, it is a bit troubling. How mm. do you think this could be done without exploiting the islands involved? <sighs> I think it comes back to to what we were talking about earlier when we talk about Mia Motley, when we're talking yeah. about the idea of having higher aspirations mm-hmm. than just a kind of neo-capitalist approach, which is that we're constantly just learning to be resilient. We're constantly yeah. just learning to sense and adapt and attune. You know, in this way, the island is the kind of key figure in many people's minds as this kind of um, adapting ecosystem can be seen as quite a low aspiration for life. And I think what islanders can need to do, um, and the islanders I speak to speak to this, you know, in the Caribbean where, where I know best, is to rise above that aspiration, 
to, mm -hmm. you know, there was a think back to independence movements in the Caribbean. There was a there was a there was a powerful urge to and I've seen I see Motley trying to bring some of that through now. Yeah. You know, keep keep to some of these higher aspirations. I think that's what I'm saying. Uh -huh. And as you yeah. mentioned the Caribbean, which you're most familiar with, I was wondering if you have any examples of how this may differ from island to island, for example, mm. based on regional position. So you have the Caribbean, but then you have small island states in, in the Pacific, there's islands in Africa, the Mediterranean, Asia and Europe. England mm. is a big island. <laughs> so yeah. how, do you, how do you differentiate from island to island? Well, I think what just one illustration of this tension. So you can see what we do in the book is we're drawing out the ways in which islands um, get kind of enrolled for broader thinking, some of which were in the book itself. We kind of just lay it out. You know, uh -huh. we're not saying one's good, one's bad. But, you know, we've done a lot of interviews and I feel when it comes to the interviews, I can kind of say I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the way in which islands get enrolled with resilience. I'm not a big fan of this, you know. So uh -huh. a good example of something I think is a bit of a tension is the way in which indigenous islanders. Now, uh -huh. in the Caribbean, that's a bit more tricky. Uh -huh. The question of indigeneity, obviously, because of the, the yeah. history of the Middle Passage and slavery and so forth. But let's talk about somewhere like the Pacific. In the Pacific, indigenous islanders often get very romanticized. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're very attuned to the winds, you know, they're very <laughs> attuned to the weather. And oh if we could all just learn to be indigenous like them, we'd all be good. Uh -huh. This this can be a very reductive and frankly condescending way of framing things. Mm -hmm. And you know, the nuances of their life are complicated just as ours are. Mm -hmm. So I think what needs to happen is this tension needs to be brought out between celebrating islandness and islands, um, but not fetishizing and romanticizing as you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, you mentioned looking at literature, which I find is going to be so amazing when you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really interdisciplinary. This is the type of research oh. I really love, arts, science, a bit of social science. Um, technology uh so this kind of research especially on sustainability um and island studies uh is very interdisciplinary uh what are some of the disciplines or subject areas that you have considered and how do you navigate those boundaries especially since in acad academic institutions <laughs> it tends to be you're a biologist and then you're a, uh, you know uh, yeah. uh literature uh, <laughs> yeah Specialist well, the you know, <laughs> I mean Jishé you know what, becoming a, a reader in island studies that's uh, uh -huh. is, that, is that career <laughs> suicide you said I've just you commit career suicide yeah um, <laughs> the, 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 the thing is I, I study islands uh -huh. so if I study islands islands are in the world yeah? uh -huh. so an, an island is in the world it's a thing you know you're from one uh -huh. I'm from one, England uh -huh. is still, a, you know, UK is still an island, you know, uh -huh. um, and these are real things. And you couldn't really reduce um, Barbados to just biology or to just <laughs> physics or to just chemistry. <laughs> to understand the thing that is an island, you uh -huh. have to see what, how it's understood by beautiful writers, Cammy Brathwaite or you know, um, Sylvia Winter, you know, Jamaica, you have to, 
but you also have to understand Charles Darwin because that's mm -hmm. also who shapes how we think about the island. Mm -hmm. So it is inherently interdisciplinary. It couldn't not be because um, that's that. But my comeback is always to the people that focus on these narrow disciplines. I've never seen a geography in the world or history in the world, but I have seen lots of islands. You know, <laughs> islands are real things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned that uh, Pacific Islanders who are indigenous to those islands um, may be fetishized, uh, for example. But are there any examples of that are particularly relevant for understanding the Anthropocene when you compare indigenous uh, islands that have particularly mainly indigenous uh, population versus those that are non-indigenous? Mm. Mm. Well, I think there's been that, you know, there's been a lot of um, work. Um, if, if, think about places like Bikini Atoll, you know, uh -huh. where there was, um, you know, the most horrendous nuclear testing and, you know, in the in in the Pacific. I mean, it's just unbelievable that this stuff went on until very, very recently. You know, I, I won't single out any groups, but um you know, the kind of protests that emerge against those that bind islanders together, you know, I think are, are ways forward. Mm. You know, and if we talk about the Caribbean, you know, the I know the West Indies Federation didn't work and it didn't last and, and all this kind of thing. But it's, it's when islanders from different islands get together with a shared common purpose of, of resistance that mm -hmm. I think things start to, to work. You know, they, we, we have to be archipelagic, as it were. You know, uh -huh. we have to reach across the islands because, uh, you know, compared to the US or Britain or someone like that, you've got to get together, haven't you? Um, and as I say, what, what happens in these debates, what worries me is what can start off as a, a potent political protest uh -huh. gets reduced to something like, you know, well, the way we learn from our indigenous islanders or people in the Caribbean is it's just how they're resilient. You know, well, that's no good. They don't, we don't want resilience. We want we want you to get off the island. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we want to we want to stop blowing up the islands. Actually, based on what you say there before can, uh, in terms of comparing the islands in different regions do you think the size of the island matters when you study them that's a that's a good question um i guess you know like with any politics if it's a political question it's about it's about a, a good group of people sharing a, a common social problem how, how, you know across networks and things like that and um, in terms of the the book anthropocene islands um, no, I don't think it does matter because what we're interested in is how islandness kind of conceptually has become uh -huh. powerful. So the idea that everything's an island in the Anthropocene, you know, a snowflake is an island, you know, I'm an island, you know, we're uh -huh. all kind of constantly relationally reattuning to our environment. We're constantly adapting and adjusting and, and relationally entangled with our world. And that's an islandness, isn't it? The idea that anything can be an island, you know, a car, mm -hmm. a person, um, a real island, you know, mm -hmm. and that it's that shift in mindset away from the idea that there was this kind of 
human that stood above nature and that could mm. control the world, you know, which has now gone to hell in a handcart, to the idea that everything is an island in the Anthropocene and everything is constantly adapting and attuning, some of which I think are in good ways, some of which perhaps I have more problems with. That's interesting in terms of everything being an island. Everything being an island, but an island that's also connected to other things as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to everything yeah. else. Then we go to yeah. some serious, uh, what well, do you call it? it? A conceptualization that spans uh, definitely physics. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, M- Mandelbrot's, you know, the infinite curve, you know, was, uh-huh. you know that was an island thinking, you know. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's all very um, it's a bringing forward of a certain way of of, of thinking. You know, even mm-hmm. things like quantum physics. Quantum physics was discovered. You know, Hel- Helgoland is an island. You know, mm-hmm. island thinking shapes so much, show so much thought. You know, and I think that's kind of where we're moving. You know, yeah. certainly in Western Western societies. I haven't spoken a lot about you know the importance of islands, studying islands, understanding how islands work. What do you think would happen to the ability to address our environmental crisis? Should islands islands not be studied very much and uh, first face the consequences of this inaction? Well, I think I think this is I think that I just well, you know it's it's a it's it's a catchy phrase. I mean, it kind of comes, I guess, it, from from a philosopher called Jacques Derrida, who kind of talked about after the world of modern reasoning, there is only islands after the end of the world, that kind of thing. I think that's the world we're in. I Uh genuinely do. Um, I think that there are only islands today, conceptually, you know, for the reasons we talked about, um, and that in that world, um, islands will inevitably real islands and islanders, we will just take an interest in them. You know, on my desk, I have dozens and dozens of books and things all on major social issues and it's just incredible how much islands get brought in as case studies constantly when I first started you know 20 30 years ago no one wrote about islands but now they're you know Obama's with all the islanders at the cop you know Uh this is this is that this is the world we now live in where where it's going I think a lot depends on what happens in, in in academia anyway in critical black studies I think critical black studies could do something really quite powerful because what's being conceptualized and thought through there is the idea that you can't grasp um, uh, blackness, that's drawing upon people like Gleason, um, there's an opacity, an opaque movement that means that the, the external person can't grasp what's going on. Now that's powerful stuff because that mm-hmm. su- suggests that the people have to speak for themselves that it's not the white person who comes a- along to the island and says, oh, this is how it works. This is what's going on. Aren't indigenous people wonderful and all this kind of thing? It's like, no, 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 you can't grasp me. You can't grasp me. Gra- Black critical thought is doing some really interesting stuff. It's our movement. It's, it's, it's a kicking off against the idea that external people can appropriate and grasp them. And yeah, I think that's yeah. where some really interesting debates are gonna start to take place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's really great to hear about. As you say that, I wonder, are there any scholars from small islands looking into these research approaches that you consider considered or that you suggest that we read? Mm. 
So I think what's happening is um, certain older Caribbean writers are uh-huh. being massively revisited today. So Edouard Glissant, Camus Brathwaite, to some extent, Derek Walcott, Benito Rojas, who wrote a book called The Repeating Island. Sylvia Winter's still very, you know, very much active in Jamaica. And I think what's happening is, particularly in North America, certain extent in Europe, there is this turning towards these wonderful Caribbean writers again, who are having a rebirth. Mm-hmm. And I think if we talk about someone like uh, Benito Rojas, Rojas, who, um, talked about the Caribbean carnival uh-huh. you know it's a movement I don't need to you're from Trinidad everyone's suffering there right now the second year yeah, I don't carnival. need to tell you carnival <laughs> but what 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 the repeating island does that book is it's fascinating in the way in which it conceptualizes the carnival uh-huh. it cannot be grasped from the outside it can't be grasped by modern frameworks of reasoning uh-huh. it's it's own thing that works against the cuts and distinctions of modernity and the way in which modernity reduces things to blacks and whites and things like this you know it's it's a force and I think Uh what's being um turned to in the Caribbean literary tradition is all these kind of writers that articulate an alternative to modernity that perhaps is also an alternative to Anthropocene islands as well it's um it's uh, what David Chandler and I are thinking through as an abyssal mode of logic, an abyss coming through the abyss of the middle passage. New senses of subjectivity emerge through things like carnival mm-hmm. that cannot be grasped, that are a movement of creolization of, of peoples that cannot be grasped and is a powerful thing mm-hmm. to, to disrupt, you know, white ontological word, world making. And um, I think this is this is some exciting stuff. And we'll, I guess we'll just have to see where things go, won't we? You know. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Caribbean is it's like, you know, the Caribbean now is where it's at with, with, <laughs> with critical thought, without a doubt. I mean, all these there's all these big names from like, you know, all, all the big U.S. universities. They're all drawing upon them again. You know, uh-huh. and I think there's something going on there, you know. 